Well, we are continuing a a walk through the book of Hebrews. We started this last fall. We are continuing into this new year. It'll take us up to Easter, but the book of Hebrews is a very interesting book. It's sometimes it's like landing on the surface of the moon, you know, another planet, so to speak. As John Adams was reminding me, like, hey, you didn't say anything about Melchizedek. And you guys are like, Mel, what a huck? Uh, and so, but no, I haven't yet. That's coming. But there can be a lot of things in the book of Hebrews that can be a little bit um, daunting. And so as we do this, I just want to remind us of a few things about where we're at when we come to the book of Hebrews. Um, the book of Hebrews is kind of a big mystery. We don't know who it was written to. We don't know who wrote it. It's a great mystery of our Bibles in the New Testament, and there's lots of people who have lots of opinions about it. But there are a number of things that we can discern about the author and the audience based on the book itself as we think about this passage that was read for us this morning. Hebrews was a book, it was a, it was a letter, but probably more importantly, it was a sermon. And it was preached or given to a group of people who had heard the gospel and had responded in faith, and then it formed a community. We know that from chapter 2, verse 3, that now that we paid attention to certain things, we have to pay closer attentions now to, to what God has said most recently, and that in your community, God has borne witness through the working of the Holy Spirit, through signs and wonders and various miracles, that this community had experienced faith and had experienced the work of the Spirit, no doubt, like our worship time, I, I hope that this last worship time, just today, just, re, just now, that you felt like there was a sense in which God was at work in our community, that God was at work in our lives as we sang these songs and as we were led in worship, that what we like to say, like, what it, just a little behind the, the curtain here, we like to say, like, I feel like we got into a nice little pocket of worship. Like, and we do always ask, and our goal is to, is to get ourselves out of that world out there into a distraction-free environment so that we can get into kind of a pocket of worship where our hearts are bound together and we're worshiping together. And I hope that you felt that this morning. And no doubt this community that this book was written to had felt that before. They had gathered together there. Their hearts had been united as they worshiped, as they read Scripture, that they were forming a community. And what we find out as we read the book of Hebrews is that this community had come under pressure. In 1033, it says that some of them had been publicly ridiculed. And even those who stayed under the radar in the community just by being affiliated with this gathering of people had experienced affliction and public reproach. And so simply being involved in this community that had gathered, that this book of Hebrews is written to, that they were experiencing pressure from this broader world, that some of them had even been put into prison, and by going to visit those people in prison and bring them provisions, that they were outed as part of the community, and they experienced that pressure. That it goes on to say in 1034 that some people in the community had their belongings confiscated, taken away, things that belonged to them were seized, whether that was legally or illegally. These people had lost their possessions, some of them. This community had been through a lot and had endured well. And they were in the midst of two cultures that did not want to see them continue on their journey of faith, their journey of allegiance 
to Jesus of Nazareth. And we've talked about this. This is a a little bit of review. If you've been around, you've heard this, that there's one culture, this broader Greco-Roman culture. The Romans were in charge politically. The Greeks kind of had left a cultural legacy. But within that, there wasn't a lot of space for Jesus. Caesar was Lord. Caesar was the Son of God. Caesar was the Savior. Caesar has established the Roman peace. And so to come in and then to say, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus provides a peace that passes all understanding. Like, you might get a little bit of how subversive that might have been. Like, that's not entirely patriotic to say in the Roman culture, right? Like, what they were doing was they were not affirming this broader culture and the powers and authorities that had formed that culture. They were saying Jesus was better than that. And so this idea that they they proclaimed Jesus was Lord was unpatriotic and would upset the various powers that kept the Roman peace. And of course, if you like peace, you're like, hey, just look, if you keep this up, these people are going to come and get angry at our community. Stop it. Stop it. And so they were experiencing pressure from this community, whether it was the surrounding community or within their community, the broader community, to stop that. And so the broader community looked down on them and applied pressure on them. That's one culture, the broad culture, the the, the dominant culture. But there was also a smaller Jewish subculture within this larger culture. In the the Greco-Roman world, in the first century, we called it the Diaspora Judaism, that Jews outside of Israel living around the Roman Empire had their pockets of community as well. And we know that these people were familiar with that because of the argument of the author. It's very Jewish. A lot of Old Testament that's going on here. And this smaller Jewish subculture also exerted pressure on this new messianic sect that was branching off of their ancient roots. Jesus had said critical things about the temple. Jesus, during his life, said critical things about the way The law was interpreted by various people within the Jewish faith. Jesus had said some pretty pretty, uh, critical things about the exclusivity of Gentiles, that within the Jewish faith that Gentiles were not allowed, non-Jewish people could not have full access to God, and Jesus had something to say about that. And so, as this new community forms that includes Gentiles, and because they include Gentiles, they don't eat kosher, they don't keep Torah, there's pressure that comes on them from this other subculture. And as they're experiencing this, as they're not eating kosher, they're not keeping Torah, these pressures bear down on this community, and this becomes the background of the book of Hebrews. But it seems as though as these pressures come to bear on the community, it seems as though some people within the community are saying from within, hey, let's take our foot off the gas for a little bit. Like we're, we're getting a lot of pressure from both sides, from the government, from the Greco-Roman culture, from our Jewish friends and brothers and sisters. We're getting a lot of that. What if we just backed off for a little bit? What if we just took our foot off the gas, we either coasted or we took a break? Like, let's just get everything, let's stabilize everything, and then once it all goes down and we get off the radar again, then we can ramp back up again. And whether this was pragmatic, like I just kind of described, or whether this was kind of a 180 from the idea, Jesus is Lord, to, hey, we're going to go back the other way, 
In either case, people in this community were weary. And it prompts the author of Hebrews, who we don't know, to offer a sermon to that community. What the book of Hebrews calls itself is a word of exhortation. Even though we might call this a letter to the Hebrews or the book of Hebrews, this was originally given as what was known as a word of exhortation, a sermon to the community. And as the author is giving this sermon to the, about the book of Hebrews, and again, this is all kind of review about where we're at with the book of Hebrews, that as he gives this sermon, there's two tracks on which this sermon goes. As you might even make note, that sometimes my sermons like I preach or that other preachers preach, that there's two tracks. One track is what we call, uh, it's, it's like explanatory. It's what we call exposition. It basically describes, it's descriptive. When you describe something, you, and this is a little grammar, a little grammar for everybody, okay? To understand the book, we've got to understand a little grammar, okay? Whenever we write or whenever we talk, we can do it in either the first person, the second person, or the third person, okay? You guys with me? You're like, you, I don't know why I just walked into my English grammar class, but hang with me, everybody. Okay, so when you describe something, when you write a paper and you want to just be descriptive of something, you write in the third person, it's cold outside. It is the subject. That's in the third person. The third person is he, she, or it. Moses did this. Moses is in the third person. Jesus is this. That's the third person. You guys, you guys with me on this? I'm like, you're like, okay, I don't know what you're, where you're going with this, Pastor Greg. Trust me, it's important to the book of Hebrews, okay? So that's when he explains, when he has an argument, when he makes a case, and the case he's making is Jesus is greater. Jesus, third person, is greater than Moses, than angels, than Joshua, than Aaron. He's greater than high priests. He offers a better sacrifice. He has inaugurated a new covenant. That's all third person. That's the whole argument of the book of Hebrews. But as he's going through this argument in this one column, he will go on a second track, and he'll break off every once in a while, and he'll move out of exposition, out of describing something, into exhorting something, to encouraging something, to calling them towards something. And the voices that you do when you exhort someone, when you call someone out, you will oftentimes use either the first or second person. A couple of examples. What we call the lettuce passages. You guys know the lettuce passages? It's not a vegetable, but when he says, let us hold fast. Okay, thank you very much. I appreciate, Aunt Paula is, is laughing, so I hit a good one, right? Okay, let us hold fast. Let us not grow weary. Let us, let us move forward, okay? That's exhortation, and that, so uh, it's not describing something. It says, let us, and when you want to, when you, I don't want to encourage somebody to do something, and you want to soften it, you always say, hey, we need to do this. You'll hear me do this all the time because I don't want to scare you guys, right? So I'll be like, we need to do this. And, you're, and I really mean you guys need to do it. I'm just kidding, right? Okay, but I, but I say we. And the author of Hebrews will do this. He'll say, look, we need to pay closer attention. But the author's probably like, look, I'm paying close attention. It's you people who aren't paying. But this is the way rhetoric, this is the way rhetoric works. And this is the way it works in the, in the first century when this is being written. And so he's describing things, but he gets off of that and he exhorts at certain times. There's really, there's five sections, but here's the deal. Um, so you got the third person explaining, 
when you exhort, let us, let us, let us. But if you really want to call someone out, you go second person. And the second person is what? You. You need to do this. The author is very hesitant to go second person. And there's only a few places in the book where the author goes, you, and comes down. Like, you know I've got something to say when it's no longer us and we. Hey, guys, we're all in this together. We this, we that. And I'm just like, you guys need to figure it out. Like, if I ever, like, you get a sense that we're in, we're in a seriousness. If, if, the, if the preacher is going, you. Now, there's different people and different ways of doing this, right? That there are some people, that's all they do. It's just you, 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 you. And of course, what's the rule? One finger pointing at them, four, well, three, pointing back at you. So you've got to watch the hypocrisy in all this. But the idea is, when we read, when the author goes, you guys need to figure this, you've got to watch out, we need to sit up and pay attention because there's something on the author's heart, and there's some situation that calls the author out of this kind of soft encouragement into a hard warning. And that's the passage that we had read today. We're going to look at half of that passage today, and then in a couple weeks we're going to look at the second half of that passage. Both halves are pretty challenging, okay? Um, But we're going to look at the first half from 5.11 to 6.3 today. You guys with me? Does this make sense? So there are five warning passages in the book of Hebrews. We already read one in chapter 2. In chapter 2, the author of Hebrews says, hey, what we've heard in the past, um, we've got to pay closer attention now. Let us pay closer attention. And then in chapter 3 and 4, he talked about, um, we hope that there's none of you who have an unbelieving heart, a heart of unbelief, in falling away from the living God. And now that we're in 5.11 to 6. 12, that composes one of the warning passages. We'll have another one in chapter 10, which is pretty pretty gnarly. This one's pretty gnarly too. That one's pretty gnarly, and then in chapter 12, there's another one. So we've got five major warning passages, exhortations or warnings, and that's how the book of Hebrews works. So exposition and exhortation, explaining his argument, Jesus is greater, urging his audience to do something or be something or stop doing something. Does that make sense? So as you're reading along in the book of Hebrews, sometimes we just make sense, we pay attention and say, hey, am I in, am I in an explanation of a doctrine or of, of, a, of a truth or, am I, in an, or I, am, I, am I in an exhortation of what he wants them to do? And we are smack dab in the middle of an exhortation. So today we're beginning one of the most direct and forceful and severe warnings in the book. And what is the the warning? Look at 5.11. Let's start in 5.11. You guys ready for this? Okay. And I've done a pretty good amount. Like there's a lot of my own uh, scholarly life has been in in this passage. And so I'm going to try to bring out some things in here that I think are helpful as we understand the book. In 5.11 it says, about this... We have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. I mean, think about what that would, think about what that would be like if I up here 
was like, I was in the middle of a sermon. I'm like, hey, I've got a lot to say coming up, but you guys are dull. <laughs> so you get a, get a sense of the sort of velocity that the author has, that there must be something, like what would it take? Because I feel like even for me, that would break character, wouldn't it? Right? Like, but think about what would be on my heart that I might be as direct as that. Okay? That's what we have to think about the author of Hebrews. He's being super direct here. Now, the word dull, the word dull is the word um, nothros. And nothros, it's actually interesting because it also occurs not only here in 511, but at the very end of the passage in 612. If you look at 612 really quick, it says, um, so that, you not may, so that you may not become sluggish. It's the same word. That word only occurs two times in the New Testament, and these are the two places where it occurs. And what we like to say that with the author, that the author begins the section with this word and ends the section with this word, and it gives us a nice little bookends. It's what they call an inclusio. It bookends to tell us that this is the beginning of the passage, this is the end. Sometimes you might think like, why did... Why did we read that passage from 5.11 to 6.12? Because it's intended to be all read together. Okay? So, no thrust, dull. Now, here's, that's, that's kind of an interesting thing, but the hard news is, what does the word dull mean? Dull means, uh, it's translated sluggish in, two, in 6.12, um, but what is their problem? Um, they have become dull, sluggish, or lazy, the word also means lazy in the ears. It's a little bit idiomatic. It says, it's hard, this is going to be hard to explain because you have become lazy in your ears. Dull of hearing is probably the way, since you become dull of hearing. There's other ways. You'll see different translations will translate this um, in different ways. And it makes sense because the author is like walking through, Jesus is greater than Moses, wonderful. Jesus is greater than angels. We get it. Jesus is greater than Joshua because he provides peace and rest. We get it. And then he's like, Jesus is a high priest. And you're like, if you were Jewish, you'd be like, no, he's not. He's not Levite. He's not, he's not descended from Aaron. He's descended from Judah, right? He's not descended from Levi. He's descended from Judah. And so the author of Hebrews is going to have to find a different priesthood for Jesus to be a part of. Now, I'm not going to talk too much Melchizedek today, um, but spoiler alert, what he does is he says he's a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, and you're like, just take that and put it on the back burner because we're going to get to it in a couple weeks. But I can get why he's like, he mentions Melchizedek, and he's like, let me pause for a second. I could go on, but this is going to be hard to understand even if you weren't in the state you are right now. Right? So he's, he's saying, like, this is going to be difficult, but there's also something else that's ailing your soul. It's not just that you can't understand Melchizedek. There's something else that's going on in your community and in your soul that we need to pay attention to if we're going to, under, if we're going to keep going on explaining what Jesus, who Jesus is and what he's accomplished, then we have to kind of address this the kind of elephant in the room. And that is, your ears have become lazy, and one of the reasons they become lazy is what he's going to go on and talk about. He says, for by this, the 512, for by this time you ought to be teachers, but you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles 
of God. Now, one of the things that we want to make, uh, make, make reference of is that in the New Testament, it talks about there are various people who are given um, uh, skilled or infilled by the Spirit or gifted by the Spirit to be teachers, to stand up in front of groups of people and explain certain things, okay? So teachers, you ought to be teachers. I don't think that's what he's talking about here. Like, hey, by this time, you all should have your own classroom and you should all be standing up in front of people. What he's talking about is that every believer is called on to be a teacher in the sense that every believer should be able to explain simply the basics of their faith. I believe in Jesus. Why do I believe in Jesus? I believe in Jesus because I believe that humanity is separated from God in their sin and that they cannot bridge that gap by their own, but the sacrifice of Jesus bridges that gap on my behalf. He pays for my sin. I get his righteousness. I can go to God based on the, right, on the sacrifice of Jesus. I don't need a classroom to do that. I could do that on the back of a napkin. I don't need to be, I don't need to be a teacher You don't have to stand up in front of the church in order to do that. But what we expect, what we would imagine, is that every person who has had their life changed by Jesus has a story to tell and a way to explain, this is why I believe in Jesus. In other words, the author of Hebrews is saying, hey, I'm explaining the significance of Jesus, but you should be able to do that as well. You should be the one... I shouldn't be the one preaching the sermon. You should be the one reminding yourselves. So that's the idea that he's saying, hey, you ought to be teaching. You should be, learned, you should be knowing this stuff on your own. So the point that he's making is that the author knows enough, or the audience knows enough about what they should be able to do to make this argument. They should be able to say Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the greatest mediator. Jesus is the way to the Father. But what he's going to do is he's going to make a distinction between what babies eat and what mature people eat. What is milk and what is solid food? What is elementary and what is mature? He goes on to say, look at uh, 512, by this time you ought to be teachers and you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Now, this is where I want to pause, and um, I want to back off of the exhortation and go to a little bit of an explanation about this passage and how there's a little bit of controversy even within the Christian tradition about what this passage is saying, okay? So there are two basic approaches to what constitutes what is milk and immaturity here and what is solid food and what is maturity, okay? And there's two, there's two basic ways, and I subscribe to one of these ways, okay? But here are the two basic ways of looking at this, and it involves a lot about how you define and how you translate these various terms. So, for example, one approach is to see milk as the basics of the Christian faith. The basics of the Christian faith. The basics about Jesus. And in some ways, it's, it's interesting because in the book of, in the book of 1 Corinthians, 
the Apostle Paul uses milk to talk in basically that way. That milk is for, is like basics of Christianity. Now, the thing is, the Apostle Paul did not write this book. Okay, and so we can't just import the way it's used there onto this passage. But the way that interpretation goes is essentially like this. In 5.12, it talks about you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. And this particular view would see this is the basics of Christianity. The basic principles of the oracles of God is elementary Christianity. And in 6.1, look at 6.1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. And usually what happens in this is that those who hold to this position look at this as this is the basics of Christian faith. As, as a matter of fact, there are some translations that translate 6.1, let us leave the basics of Christianity or basic Christian teaching or elementary Christian teaching. And they're taken as the basics of the Christian faith. And that then the problem with the audience is that while they've come to faith in Jesus, they have stayed in a prolonged and constant state of immaturity. And they refuse to go on to the more meaty teaching, the more meaty things of the Christian faith. They are perpetually what some people might call baby Christians. And that's their problem. And the author is warning them about the consequences for staying in that state. That's one approach. The other approach and this is the approach that I actually would hold to. So I, I actually, so spoiler alert, I don't hold, I don't think that that is what this passage is saying. Okay? As much as it, as much as we can superimpose things right onto that, and we might even know people who kind of stay in a perpetually Christ baby state, whatever that is. Now, I'll talk a little bit about that afterwards, but let me explain how I'm viewing this and why I think that are, why I think my, my approach, I, and I'm not alone. I'm not alone in this in the scholarly world or even the pastoral world. So I'm not an outlier in this. It's just we have, there's a divergence of thought here. The other approach notes that um, when you start talking about the consequences for being in this state, the consequences for being in this state in chapter 3 is that these people's bodies fell in the wilderness. They all died. And here in chapter 6, the consequences for being in this state is that it's impossible to renew you to repentance. And sometimes when, when scholars would look at this, they'd be like, is that, is that really the consequence for simply being in a state of immaturity, even if it is for a long time? Even if it is for kind of like being simplistic in your Christian faith for a long time? So when we look at this, I would say, okay, well, is there another way to read this that might make better sense out of the severity of the warning. Now, uh, so phrases like the, um, the basic, the phrases like the basic principles of the oracles of God and the elementary teaching of the Messiah, I would argue, are referring not to elementary Christian teaching, but to the basics of faith before Jesus was around. The basics of essentially a Jewish faith, even a robust Jewish faith, but a pre-messianic faith, a, a faith that was around before Jesus showed up. And here's my argument for this, okay? So in 5.12, it says, the, so I'm going to take that view. In 5.12, it says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. 
that word basic principles, it's actually the ABCs. The basic principles is the ABCs of the oracles of God. And what that is essentially is, and we're going to see a little bit of what it is, that is what I would say is milk. He says you need milk, not solid food. And in 6.1, he says, let us leave the elementary teaching of Christ. Now, the elementary teaching of Christ, or the elementary doctrine of Christ. Some of you guys might have a different translation in your Bible, but the elementary doctrine of Christ, I think is a better way to think about this and make sense with the translation, is the elementary teaching about the Messiah. One of the things that I think is important is like in our, in our Christian faith, we never leave the basic teaching about Jesus. We never leave it. We hold on to it. We hold fast to it. But what we do leave is an elementary teaching about the Messiah. What is an elementary teaching about Messiah? Go back into the Old Testament. What does the Old Testament say about Messiah? He's going to come one day. He's going to deliver his people. He's going to show up. He's going to be from the house of David. That Look, he, the, a Messiah is coming. That's elementary teaching about the Messiah, but what's, pro- what's the problem with that? Jesus has come. He has announced himself as Jesus, as the Messiah. He has died for our sins. So the, this idea that the elementary teaching about the Messiah, that might have, look, there was a time where that was the thing you held on to with all of your hope and with all of your faith. He's on his way. But now that Jesus has come, what does it look like to hold on to that elementary teaching? It makes it seem like you don't even believe what has actually happened. So this idea, what the author is saying is that, hey, we have the most recent revelation from God. Think about Hebrews. Look, turn back to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1. This is exactly the argument that he makes when he starts the book. He says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That's awesome. That's the Old Testament. That's the law, the prophets, and the writings. That's wonderful. But verse 2, but in these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the world. Jesus has shown up. Jesus is the Messiah. And so this idea that if you are, if you believe Jesus is the Messiah and you go back and you're like, hey, what we really need to do is we really just need to go back and revisit this Messiah's on his way thing and we need to kind of hammer that nail, Messiah's on his way. No! If you're going to hammer the nail, Messiah's on his way, why don't you spend some time talking about the truth about who Jesus is? And so what the author of Hebrews is saying is that whatever pressure is being put on these people, perhaps what they're feeling is that in order to stop this pressure on us, maybe from the Greco-Roman community, maybe from the Jewish community, we just need to go back, take our foot off the gas and go back to this Old Covenant, Old Testament preaching. Messiah is on his way. And if we do that, maybe that'll just soften the blows a little bit and we'll get back in good graces with the Jewish community, and thus with the Greco-Roman community. And the author is like, no, 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 no. You think you need milk. That's what you think. You don't need milk because the author, he says, you need milk, not solid food. But he never, he never gives them milk. What does he do? 
He's like, let's talk about Melchizedek, <laughs> right? Let's keep going. Jesus inaugurates a new covenant. Jesus is the once for all sacrifice. Like the author is not going to give them milk. He kind of says, look, you think you need milk. You don't need milk. What you need is maturity and solid food. And solid food is this robust teaching about who Jesus is. I would even argue the basics and elementary things about who Jesus is is what they need. So all this to say, what is immaturity and what is maturity in this passage? Immaturity is this old covenant teaching. It's, it's what we might call immature or incomplete teaching about Jesus. What is maturity? It is the idea that Jesus has come. Jesus is Messiah. Jesus has died for our sins. Jesus is a high priest on our behalf. That is mature teaching. And so what I want to caution us with is not that what he's doing is dividing the congregation. You people are just baby Christians and you people are doing well. I, sorry for you people. Like, and yeah, anyway, okay, for the sake of that you, that he's dividing, you're immature and you guys are mature. What he's rather doing is saying, look, some of you guys are lingering in simply this old covenant teaching about the Messiah. And now that Jesus has come, that has been fulfilled. It's time to move on from that. Leave it. Not leave it all the way behind, but as a start, you might start with it, but you need to go on. Look at what he, how he describes the elementary teaching about the Messiah. Here's the thing. If you listen to how he describes the elementary teaching about the Messiah, there's nothing inherently Christian about it. Listen to it. He says, um, let's leave the elementary teaching about the Messiah, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works. Sure, we in Christianity, we talk about repentance, Clearly talked about in the Old Testament. Is repentance a major theme in the Old Testament? Yes. Okay? Repentance from dead works. Faith toward God. Yeah, look, that, that's Old Testament. What would we talk about? We would talk about faith in Jesus. Faith toward God. Instructions about washings. Look, in the Jewish world, before you went into any kind of uh, worship setting or reading Torah, you went through a mikvah bath. In the Christian world, we don't do that. Even the early Christians didn't do that. They, there would be baptisms, but there wouldn't be washings. The laying on of hands. Certainly, we see when you appoint an elder or something like that, you lay hands on them. But in the Old Testament, you would also have laying on of hands for healing. But you would also have these things like when you sacrificed an animal, what you would do is in order to identify with the animal is you would lay your hand on the head of the animal. And so what he's saying is that, look, you don't need more instruction about how to do sacrifices and the laying on of hands. The resurrection of the dead, established in the Old Testament, certainly fulfilled in Jesus, and one day will be fulfilled in the resurrection of the righteous, and ultimately eternal judgment. Eternal judgment is something that is clear in the Old Testament. Certainly we, we retain some of this in Christian teaching. But here's the thing. If these people are experiencing pressure, if these people are experiencing pressure, and you walk from, let's say, from the Jewish community, and you walked into the synagogue, and you're like, 
I believe in washings and the laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, what do you have to say about it? They would say, good job. We love that. that there's no distinction between what you believe and what we believe. But clearly, they're experiencing this pressure. There is a distinction. And so what we're saying, are you guys following me? I, I, I could see a little bit of glazing over. And it's basically this. I want us to avoid the idea in this passage that immaturity in this passage, that milk is simply people stuck in a baby Christian posture. Immaturity and milk are people that refuse to acknowledge that Jesus has come. And so it's not so much baby and mature, it's unbeliever and believer in this passage. It's people who might have gone back to not affirming the supremacy of Jesus. And so the, you can tell why the author might be a little bit worked up here. Like if, if it was just people stuck in immaturity, I would feel like the author might be like, hey, let's, we should do this. But if he's like, I think this is deadly what you're doing. I think this could be deadly. Like that's when he brings out you, uh, you ought to be teachers, but you need to wake up. So the velocity from this passage, I think, comes from the idea that you've mishandled Jesus. You're ignoring Jesus. You're not leaning into Jesus. You're going backwards. And so that's essentially what I would say he is doing. That's milk. So solid food is what he's giving him. Jesus is greater. Jesus is a high priest. Jesus is the once for all sacrifice. And when we go forward into faith, we leave behind the basics of Old Testament, Old Covenant faith, and we move ahead into talking about Jesus. All right. Now, why, why, am, I, why am I so pumped up about this? Okay. And the reason is, I, I think I've seen, particularly in, in church world and in doctrine, is that um, there's a lot of questions about what happens um, if I don't show all the external signs that I am growing in my Christian faith? Like, what if I struggle? What if I have doubts? What if I forget to read my Bible one day? Well, God's going to clearly judge you. No, okay, so, so, uh, all right. And some of you are like, of course he will. No, hang on one second, okay? Um, and there have been lots of ways of looking around, looking around at a church and being like, well, that person's on fire, and that person loved Jesus, and I don't know about that person. I'm sorry for pointing at people. I'm not, okay? But the idea of, like, looking around and being like, well, that person loves Jesus. I don't know about that person. Like, that person is clearly on fire. That person I don't know about. Like, looking around and kind of making that, figuring that out. And there's a lot of what we call models of sanctification that are kind of built on this idea of asking the question, why do some Christians look like this, and why do some people who claim faith in Jesus look like this? And may, if you've been a Christian for any time at all, you've probably encountered this issue. Like, what is the difference between what seems like robust faith and what seems like people who are just tottering on mediocrity? 
And in different models of faith, you'll get these different distinctions. Like, for example, in some models of, of sanctification, the uh, sanctification, sorry, sanctification is the idea, you put your faith in Jesus, that's justification. After you die, and you are, you are glorified. So between justification and glorification is what we call, thank you, thank you very much, sanctification. See, Jim's on board with me. Sanctification. It's the idea of how do I grow in my faith in Jesus and become more like Jesus? And that's the idea from the point of your faith in Jesus to the day you die, your sanctification is happening, okay? And what we talk about a model of sanctification is how do we explain that process? And how do we make sense of the divergence of experience within the body of Christ within that model? Now, some people will explain it this way. Well, clearly, some people are spiritual and some people are carnal, fleshly. Has anybody ever heard that before? Okay, fair enough. Okay, okay, all right. Um, some people are um, some people are saved, but some people are saved and sanctified. Anybody hear that? If you're from a more Wesleyan tradition, you might experience that. Okay, saved and sanctified. Okay. Um, Maybe you've heard this before, that some Christians are average, but other Christians are normal. Anybody ever heard this before? <laughs> You're like, nobody's ever called me normal before. Okay, all right, hang with me, hang with me. That's what we call, it's actually what we call a Keswick model of sanctification, okay? Hang with me. All right, you're like, I'm, people are like, eyes rolling back. Stay with me, guys. Um, if you're, uh, so that's a little bit of a non-denominational, anyway. Um, there's other ones like some people are saved and what their problem is, they're just not spirit-filled. That was kind of the charismatic movement of the 70s and 80s, third wave of the 90s, etc. Okay. Um, so, now, here's why, <laughs> here we go. Why do I not like that? Okay. Why do I not like that approach? Okay. Here's why I don't like that approach. Um, when we make distinctions, well, first of all, when we look around the congregation and we're like, that person's, uh, you know, that person's not doing it, that person, like, I don't think that's the best way for us to do, for us to walk about our Christian faith, right? I don't think that an external focus, I think the first thing we need to do is just look at our own lives. Like, the only person, someone was asking me, like, how do I know if that person's growing? And the, an the answer is, look, you don't know anything about that person. The only person you know about is you. You know if God is at work in your life, and you, you're, that's the idea. Now, as leaders, we can encourage people into certain postures, right? But what about people who, who don't show these external markers? And what I think happens is we create what we would call, I, I think that the, 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 the spiritual growth happens on a spectrum, not on tiers, okay? So this is, this is the fir my first point on this is I think that spiritual growth happens on a spectrum, not on tiers. Like, they're at this tier, and they moved up to this tier, or they moved up to this tier. Whenever we create even a two-tiered, like normal or average and normal, saved but spirit-filled, I think what we do is we create an artificial tier, an artificial tiering system. And when we do that, what we do is we create categories of people who can then experience pride and maybe even a little bit more than what they've actually experienced, and we can create despair and looking down on people, even if they're like, at this point, 
but they're still, like, do you understand what I'm saying? Creating, creating tears creates artificial barriers and artificial boundaries that I don't think are present in a, in a spectrum of growth. Okay, you guys with me? And a passage like this, if we apply immature to mature, and that we only have those two categories, we lose, we lose the spectrum on which people are experiencing God at work in their life. But it makes more sense to say, you've dealt with Jesus inaccurately. Like, that's one place where I could say, there are people who have dealt with Jesus accurately, and there are people who have dealt with Jesus inaccurately. And that's what I want, I want us to see that, rather than look around and be like, yeah, they're just average. Whereas our Bible study is normal, right? <laughs> like, I, again, I know nobody would say something like that, but that's what I want to avoid. And that's because that happens in Christian traditions. In my own life, I've experienced that in various, so anyway, and maybe you haven't, and it's just me, and I've got my own problems, so l- l- let me have my own problems and work them out here from the pulpit, okay? The other thing is this, and I, this is the way, I want you guys to know this about the way I view the Christian life, and we'll, ra- we'll land the plane with this. My basic understanding of the Christian life is that a life of faith is a life that's lived in seasons. And there are some seasons that we enter into in which we feel oriented. We feel like there's a protected time of growth, like I experience God, I experience the presence of God, that I know what God is doing, I know he's involved in my life, I'm surrounded by great people, and I know that God is at work orientation. And we all need seasons like that in our lives that orient and form us. They make us who we are. They give us a sense of like, hey, what I need to do is like, it gives me direction in my life of faith. But there are other times in our life of faith in which even though we have a robust faith in in God and in Jesus, we are disoriented. And whether there are times where it is our own sin that takes us into disorientation. That happens. But there's other times it's not your own sin, it's other people's sin against you. Enemies wronging you, or worse yet, friends wronging you. Or a church you feel like has wronged you. And it takes you into a profound season of disorientation where it doesn't look like the fruit on the tree over here where yes I know exactly where God is you're over here in the dark and in the fog in the valley of the shadow of death and you're like I have no idea where I am and all I want is my shepherd to stand beside me but I can't even see him there's no fruit but there's roots growing you can't see it In seasons of orientation, fruit is plentiful. But you look at a tree after spring and summer and you're picking fruit and you look at that same tree in winter, where'd all the fruit go? Well, what's happening is the roots are going deep. We can't see that. But we trust that God's at work. And I want us to understand that the way I view the life of faith is that you're, you're here, and there might, this might be an awesome season of marching forward in obedience to Jesus, but this also might be a season in which you are recovering from a deep hurt and a deep wound 
And look, people who are recovering from a deep hurt and deep wound, we don't just like throw on stage, sing some music for us. Like, no, let's talk about it. There's, there's different seasons of life. If you're oriented, I think, look, a season of service is awesome, and maybe even disoriented service is a helpful thing. But look, during this time, during, during all of this, I want us to understand that whether you are oriented or disoriented, God is at work in your life. And I will not make a tear of which is better. Neither is better. They are just what are. <laughs> if you are living a life of faith, you will experience time of orientation where God protects you and grows you, but you will also experience a time where God removes the bottle of consolation and you go into the wilderness. Look, if Jesus had to go into the wilderness, you will go into the wilderness. If Jesus cried out in prayer, you will cry out in prayer. If Jesus asked his father for things that his father would not give him, take this cup from me, you will ask the father, you will beg the father for things that he will not give you, and it will be disorienting. That's not backsliding. That is a robust life of faith that takes it seriously that I'm going to pray in the darkness that God will move me through this season, we don't get taken out of disorientation. We are moved through disorientation, and God is faithful to do it. And what we need is not a community of people who make a division and, oh, they're average, they're normal. What we need is a community of people who just come around and say, look, we're in this. We will go through the darkness together. I feel good right now, but I get that you don't, and that must be hard because I know that Jesus would say it's hard. He went through it too. Let's come together and let's walk together through this season. Does that make sense why I get pumped up about this? It's so, there's so much beauty in just recognizing that there is a spectrum on which God is at work in all of our lives and all of our job is is simply to walk beside each other, urge each other on toward Jesus. There's two things I want to encourage you to do. I want you to fix your eyes on Jesus, wherever you are. And in this way, I feel like I'm writing, I'm in good concert with the author of Hebrews. What does he say in chapter 12? We're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Let's throw off everything that hinders the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, doing what? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Wherever you are, oriented, disoriented, you know what's up, you don't know what's up, fix your eyes on Jesus. The second thing I would just urge you to do is just this, and this is a simple thing. It's just take some moments to just recognize the way in this season, whatever season you're in, God is calling you near to him. Whatever season, you, whatever season you are in and you walked into this room, I will tell you this, God is calling you near to him in some way. It's going to be different for everybody. Maybe there's something he's calling you toward, someone he's calling you toward, some action or activity or form of service he's calling you toward, or maybe it's just the idea that he's just calling you toward himself so that he can say, look, I just want you to know how much I love you during this season. Just take some time to identify and recognize the way God in this season is calling you near to him.
And I will say this as long as I stand up here. God rejoices when you come to him, no matter how forgetful you've been. God will always rejoice that you come to him, no matter how forgetful you have been. You, second person, you. God loves you.